my, my oh my, how the time does fly back again already? Could we be so lucky that it is already time for another episode of Twice the Lutheran? Yes, we are so blessed. (laughs) Welcome back. Glad to have you. Back for another fun-filled episode of Twice the Lutheran. I'm Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's because I am twice the Lutheran. Welcome back again. Thanks again to those of you who have sent me emails or communications to say hi. I'd still love to hear from more of you. I want to know what questions you have. I want to know what comments you have or concerns you have. So please, if you haven't done so yet, reach out to me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Hey, before we dive back into our study on the third commandment, and don't worry, we will, because I know you've been waiting the much-anticipated conversation on what we do in our worship services. But before we go there, I want to add just a, a few brief passing comments on the war that is going on in Israel in the Middle East right now. I don't want to say too much because this is not a political podcast show. Didn't want it to be one. When I signed up and categorized it, I put it as a religious podcast for a reason. However, I've been noticing sort of religious over or undertones regarding this war in Israel. A lot of people attributing biblical passages, uh, getting carried away with uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, and applying these things to the nation of Israel. Don't do that. Don't do that. And here's why. When the Bible is talking about Israel, especially in New Testament, it's not talking about a nation. It's talking about the Holy Christian Church. Okay, how do we know that? Let me read some passages here for you from Romans. If you go to Romans chapter 9, you read from verses 6 to 9, here's what it says. This does not mean that God's word has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are really Israel. And not all who are descended from Abraham, are really his children. This is shocking, especially if you were a Jew in the New Testament time and you're hearing about this. What do you mean not everyone from Israel is Israel? Paul goes on. On the contrary, your line of descent will be traced through Isaac. This means that It is not the children of the flesh who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are counted as his descendants. That's the real Israel. For this is what the promise said. I will arrive at this set time and Sarah will have a son. There's a distinguishing, uh, there's a, there's a distinguishing line being made here between Sarah and Hagar. Remember, Abraham had two children. Remember that? Isaac and Ishmael. But who receives the promise? Who are Abraham's, quote, real children? Isaac. He has the promise. So we are Israel. We are Abraham's children because we share the faith of Abraham. So when the Bible is talking about God rescuing Israel and God saving Israel, that's a promise for you and me. He's done that. He did that on the cross when he died, took away your sins, made you his child, and gives you the promise that someday he's coming back to take you out of this fallen world and into the new paradise. So what's going on in the Middle East? These are two foreign nations fighting over a plot of land. Now, I understand that's understating it, and there's a lot more complexities going on there. Again, find a political podcast and listen to that if you want to know more. 
but for our sake, for our uh, attention, our brief, ever so brief attention, remember, Israel is the New Testament church of God. We're not talking about the nation over there. All right, let's press on, huh? Enough of that. Enough of world events. We want to get back into God's holy word. We left off talking about the third commandment and getting to church and why folks stay away from church. You know, I can't really answer that question for you. Why do you stay away from church? Here's what I'd suggest. Go find somebody who's not going to church and ask them why. Just ask them. You don't have to argue them. You don't have to, you know, do anything to convince them to come back. Just start here. Ask somebody, why don't you come to church? Just listen to their answer. And then think about it and pray about it and maybe some other time strike up the conversation. Because then you will know. Now, for our purposes this morning, or afternoon, or evening, or whatever you're listening to this, we're talking specifically about the structure of our worship services. We're going to take it as a given that God wants us together for worship. He wants us together as the body of Christ to gather around word and sacrament. We read that last episode from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Rather, let us encourage each other all the more as you see the day, the judgment day, the final day approaching. So we've got this really kind of a a practical question to answer. What do we do when we get together? Well, how about we pick it up on page 62 if you're following along in the catechism. This is question number 50. We, we, we said last time we gather together around the Word of God. So why is God's Word especially important to us? Romans 10.17 says this, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes through the Word of Christ. So you can't have faith, you can't be a Christian apart from Word and sacrament. It's just not possible because faith comes. God said, God said this. Faith comes from hearing the message. And what message is that? It comes through the word of Christ. It's the scriptures. So it seems wholly appropriate. <laughs> wholly appropriate, get it? W-H-O-L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y. Wholly appropriate. <laughs> it seems wholly appropriate. That we gather together around the Word. On page 63 of the Catechism, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. Because God's Word is so important to us, it is the source of life. The Christian Church provides regular opportunities for God's people to come together to worship God and hear His Word. So one of the most important, the most important feature of what we do when we get together, what is it? It's the Word of God. Shortly after the time of Jesus, Christians began to meet regularly on Sundays. Why? In memory of several important events that took place on Sundays. The first day of creation. Remember, God created the world in seven days, and he rested on the seventh day and made that one the Sabbath day, and then tells us all throughout the Old Testament, Sabbath is on Saturday which means Sunday then was the first day of creation. Jesus' resurrection, that happened on Sunday. And the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Sunday. Eventually, in much of the world, Sunday was set aside as a day of rest and worship. Yet today, many people are expected to work on Sundays and their opportunities for worship become limited. In New Testament freedom, many congregations, my congregation does this, many congregations offer opportunities for people to worship together and hear God's word on other days of the week. And we're allowed to do that. Because what's the most important feature of our worship? The word of Christ. The most important feature is not when you're meeting, 
or where you're meeting, yes, those things are important, but only as practical matters, not in fulfillment of the, of the commandment. Back in the Catechism, Sunday is still the primary day of worship for the majority of Christians. But what matters most, here's what we just said, is not the specific day, but rather that we are gathering together with fellow Christians to hear God's word, to benefit from the sacraments, and to encourage one another in the faith. So there you have it. You are free to worship on whatever day works for your schedule. But there is an implicit mm, encouragement. I'm going to say it that way. There's an implicit encouragement here. Make sure that one of the days of the week works for your schedule. To gather together. Now, a lot of people have asked, well, what about online church? What about online worship? I don't really have to get together, do I? I don't have to be in the in the sanctuary. And of course, we all point to COVID as when we were shut down and we, we gathered together online. Do you have to be in the sanctuary? Well, no. Is online worship legit? Well, of course, the word is there. But what lacks when you're only solely online? Would you really say that you can have a family reunion fully online? Isn't there something about being face-to-face together? Would you really only want to visit the kids or grandkids digitally on a FaceTime video call? Isn't there something just so special about getting together in a physical space together, face-to-face? And then, of course, we have the the matter of the sacraments. How are you going to take communion with other Christians online? You're you're not going to. Now, I don't want to disparage online worship. I think it has its place. Mama's home sick with with a sick kid or something. We've had that in our house. Catch catch the service online. Shut-ins who can't get out of the house anymore. Boy, that becomes a very important feature to have an online service or a recorded service of some sort. But you know what they all desire? (laughs) They all wish they could get together. They all long for the day when they can get back together. And for our shut-ins, too, we we don't just give them a video, right? Lutheran pastors still make house calls. Did you know that? Yeah, Lutheran pastors make house calls. We go to the homes to bring the word in person, to bring the sacrament in person. And to a man or a woman, you understand what I'm saying, to a person, each of the shut-ins that that I visit would readily declare, oh, I wish I could be back in the sanctuary. And, of course, we point them to the sanctuary of heaven where we will all be together again. So don't undervalue the in-person gathering face-to-face of Christians, especially in a digital world, in an online world, there's something even more hyper-special about the church that says when you hear the gospel, we want you to hear it from the mouth of a real person that you're really looking at with your real eyes. A flesh-and-blood man bringing you the good news of Christ. That's what we want. Now, to say more than that might be to say too much because we don't want to disparage bringing the word to others digitally. But I don't think that that should be, as a rule, the replacement for being in the sanctuary of God. As a rule. As an exception, sure. But as a rule, no. Now, when we do get together, What should we do together? What should we do? Other than the sermon, probably the two other most notable features of regular Lutheran worship would be, number one, singing. The Lutheran church is the singing church. And number two, the liturgy. The liturgy, the order of service that we go through. 
Now, I understand that not every Lutheran church is a liturgical church. I would argue that probably almost all of them are in some capacity. They maybe just change the wording a little bit, change the flow, and hey, Christian freedom, you can do that. But if we're going to gather together, we have a practical matter then. What should we do when we get together? If we're going to read God's Word, well, what parts of God's Word should we read? If we're going to sing hymns, well, what things should we sing? What hymns should we sing? If we're going to have an order of service, an order in the way we're going to do things, what should that order look like? Now, historically, and when I say historically, I'm going back to even pre-Reformation, there's been sort of an agreed-upon or specially carefully put-together series of readings. We're going to talk first about that. Now, you may or may not be aware that in the Christian church and in the Lutheran church, we follow a church calendar. We have special seasons. Does anybody know when the new year for the church is? Why, you can't answer. Why did I ask that? You can't answer me. Maybe you can answer out loud right now if you want. Go ahead. And you're right, of course. The new year for the church comes in the season of Advent. Advent? What's that? When is that, you say? And I say, you're in the right place, then, if you got a question about that. For the liturgical church, for the Christian church following the, the life of Christ throughout the seasons of the year. Here's the rotation. You can remember it with the acronym. Isn't it acronym? I think that's the word I'm looking for, an acronym. ACE LEAP. That's a rough acronym you can use. A-C-E-L-E-A-P. ACE LEAP. Asleep. <laughs> that sounds like asleep. ACE LEAP. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost. That's the festival half of the church year. Now, I'm on page 64 of the Catechism. I'm going to read the, what it says here. The early Christian church developed a system to provide an annual review of the chief teachings of the Bible. That makes sense, right? If you're going to read God's Word, maybe we should do it in a specific way, with a specific purpose. The Sundays of the church year are divided into units or seasons that focus on major events in the life of Jesus as well as the important lessons God teaches us in the Bible. The church year begins with Advent. See, now you know something that maybe you didn't know before. You're turning into twice the Lutheran. I told you I wouldn't waste your time. The church year begins with Advent. Four Sundays before Christmas. Because the system doesn't follow the calendar year exactly, we call it the church year. If you are twice the Lutheran, like I am, then much of your life follows the church calendar. It becomes almost as important to you as the regular calendar, the 12 months of the year, the church year. How does it work? The first half of the church year is called the festival half. The festival half. On the Sundays in the festival half of the church year, we review the life of Christ, especially his birth. I'm reading, by the way, if you couldn't tell, I'm reading from the Catechism. We review the life of Christ, especially his birth, which is Advent and Christmas, and then his suffering, death, and resurrection, Lent and Easter. The second half of the church year is the non-festival half. During this portion of the church year, we focus on how the life of a Christian can reflect the love that Christ has shown us. Now, the non-festival half of the church year we'll get into in a minute. Here's the festival half. We start with Advent, and the theme for Advent is the preparation for Christ's first and second coming. That's why, if you ever notice, in a liturgical church and in the Lutheran church, 
around Christmas, we also talk about Judgment Day an awful lot and the end of the world an awful lot. For us, the end of the world is not a depressing idea at all because we know what that means. Heaven, paradise, come Lord Jesus. So in Advent preparation, we're talking about preparing for Christ's coming as the baby in the manger, his first coming. But we're also talking about his second coming, which has yet to happen when he will return as judge. That's the theme of Advent. The time for Advent is four Sundays before Christmas. Four Sundays before Christmas. Then, of course, Advent gives way to Christmas. But Christmas isn't just the, the day, the one day of Christmas. Christmas is, runs from December 25th to January 6th. That's the time for the Christmas season, December 25th to January 6th, which is always a little hard for us to wrap our brains around now because for us, Christmas sort of ends on December 25th, right? You've, you've been celebrating the Christmas season up until then. But actually, historically, and according to the church calendar, Christmas begins on December 25th and runs through January 6th. And, of course, the theme is the birth of the Savior. After Christmas, Advent, Christmas, we got to have an E, ace, is epiphany. Epiphany, if you remember, the epiphany is like the word, aha, I've had an epiphany. It's when you realize something, when you learn something. So epiphany, the theme of epiphany is Jesus showing himself as Savior. Aha, he is the Savior. So that's the theme we focus on in Epiphany, showing you exactly how we know Jesus is the Savior. And that runs January 6th through the next four to nine Sundays, depending on the date of Easter. Okay, Easter, that that date rolls around a little bit. It's not the same every year. So that's Epiphany. Then we go to Lent. And again, if you are in a historic Lutheran church or an old Lutheran church, you'll remember Advent and Lent for two special features, Wednesday church. Yep, we go to church twice a week because we're twice the Lutherans. So Lent, we celebrate, we worship on Wednesday. The theme is the suffering and death of Jesus. That's when we read through the passion history of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. During the season of Lent, we have like a muted worship. We don't sing the Alleluias. We're, we're meditating specifically on Jesus' suffering and death. We call that his passion. And in our midweek services, typically we will read the Passion History, where we take all the gospel accounts, we put them all together and read through the events leading up to Jesus' death. But during Lent, Sunday is a mini Easter. Remember, we worship on Sundays because one of the chief events, the chief event that happened for us was the resurrection. That happened on Sunday. So even during the season of Lent, Sundays are supposed to be a little Easter. So when is the season of Lent? It's six Sundays before Easter. And Lent includes Palm Sunday. Remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Maundy Thursday, or Teaching Thursday, that's the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to study that, by the way, coming up. So you got Maundy Thursday, uh, you got uh, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, and Good Friday. Why do you call it Good Friday? Because it's the day Jesus died. And you say, well, that sounds like Bad Friday. Actually, no, because we know what happened in Jesus' death. All our sins are washed away. At Jesus' death, heaven opened for us. And we call that pretty good. Good Friday. Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, that was Lent, L-E-A-P, Ace Leap, Easter comes next after Lent. And, of course, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Now, that's not just on Easter Sunday. That is seven Sundays in the Easter season. It's Easter Sunday and then six more Sundays after that. After Easter comes Ascension, that's when Jesus returns to heaven, and that comes 40 days after Easter. 
And then the season of Pentecost, which is the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that comes the Sunday, 50 days after Easter. Pentecost is, means 50. So the very word Pentecost is 50. It's the Sunday that is 50 days after Easter. So that's the church calendar of the festival half. I want to read to you, there's almost a whole page here uh, on on page 65. Now, it's going to start transitioning our thinking uh, through the non-festival half and then into our singing, the singing feature. So the non-festival half of the church year begins with Trinity Sunday. It's at the end of May or the beginning of June, and it runs all the way through November. And then in November, we start again with Advent. That's the new year. Okay, that's the new year for the church. It's in November, right after Thanksgiving time. Trinity Sunday is the first Sunday after the celebration of Pentecost. The Sundays that follow Pentecost are referred to as, get this, you ready? Sundays after Pentecost. I know, I know, not only are we clever, we're practical. So after Sundays after Pentecost. They offer Christians the opportunity to review what a Christian life looks like. The last Sunday of the non-festival half of the church year focus on the Reformation and the end times as we prepare for Christ's return. In fact, in our church we had a season called End Times. Uh, That's kind of gone away with the new hymnal. Um, I... For myself, I'm a little thankful that it has because when you go through end times and then you go into the season of Advent, guess what you're talking about in the season of Advent? (laughs) The end of time, Jesus coming back again. How many different ways can you say that, right? (laughs) Jesus is coming back, get ready. All right, during the non-festival half of the church year, we celebrate several special days. In addition to the Reformation, we observe Thanksgiving Day, the fourth Thursday of November. That's in the U.S. And in the in Canada, the second Monday of October. Yeah. Many congregations also celebrate a special mission festival in this half of the church year. That, that varies from congregation to congregation. Okay, although God's word doesn't bind us to this plan or any other, by the way, many churches follow it because they recognize the value of studying the life and teachings of Christ every year. Now, you don't have to follow this rotation, this regular rotation. There is a lot of strengths in what other churches do in preaching a a, a series, a sermon series, where they pick some topic and and bring up the relevant Bible passages that speak to that topic and meditate on those. You can do that. There's a lot of practical value in there. But how do you make sure that you're balancing out and, and hitting not just your hobby horse topics, but you're really getting to the fundamental teachings and reviewing those. You got to be careful to make sure you're doing that. You want to you want to preach all of God's word. Back in the catechism, over the centuries, the leaders of the church designated a set of readings from the Bible for each Sunday of the church year. The list of readings is called the lectionary. I know you thought I was going to say the list of readings is called the list of readings but it's called the lectionary. And each Sunday's set consists of an Old Testament reading, that's usually the first one we read, a reading from one of the Gospels, that's usually the third of our readings, and a reading from one of the letters or epistles, epistle means letter, of the New Testament. These readings highlight the unique emphasis for that particular Sunday. Here's a word of practical advice. For you who go to church regularly or you who want to start going to church regularly, how does it work in the liturgical church? Each Sunday has a theme. That theme is set by the gospel reading. Now, the other readings and the prayer of the day, and to a certain extent even the hymns, all want to reflect that theme. So if you want to get more out of your worship, here's what you can do. Discover how the three readings are connected. What's the theme that runs through all three readings? And 
Where in the hymns do you see that theme reflected? You'll really start to kind of see a a deeper reason for the readings that we have. Now, if you want to know what the what the rotation of readings is. If you are in a Lutheran church with hymnals in the pews, you can look in the hymnal. You'll find the lectionary. We have a year A and a year B and a year C, ABC. In year A, the gospel readings come from Matthew. Not exclusively, but by and large. In year B, guess where the gospel readings come from? Mark. And in year C, where do the gospel readings come from? Don't think too hard. Matthew, Mark, you guessed it. Luke. And John gets sprinkled in there too. In all three years. So that's, if you're wondering, where do we get those readings? It's a historic lectionary. The rotation of readings goes way back. Goes way back. And then pastor usually picks one of those three readings to preach on, to expound on a little bit. All right, back into the catechism. The church year guides worship over the course of a year. Many churches have also adopted a pattern that provides structure for worship every Sunday. We call that pattern the liturgy. Liturgy. The liturgy has two key parts. Okay, so we're transitioning away from the calendar year And now we're going to get a little bit of a look at what's happening in each of the worship services. The liturgy has two key parts. First, there is a part that regularly changes. So every Sunday, the lessons, which we call the pericope, pericope just means to cut around something. So you're reading a a, a section of God's Word that's kind of been cut out so that you're not reading the whole book of you know, First Peter or something. You're just reading a, a section of it. So we call that a pericope, like you cut it out and you just read that one little part. So here's what changes every, uh, every uh, uh, Sunday. The lessons, the pericope, the hymns, those change. And some of the prayers, okay, that'd be usually the prayer of the day if you're in a liturgical church. Uh, Some of the prayers focus on the particular theme of the day. They change according to the part of Jesus' life we are considering or the aspect of Christian living that we're studying. That is called the proper. So the two parts of the liturgy are the proper and the ordinary. The proper changes every Sunday. And then there's the other part that doesn't change, at least not much. It changes a little bit. We call it the ordinary. The part that doesn't change is, for example... In most services, we confess our sins and we receive the assurance that we are forgiven. In most services, we have a special song of praise that rises from our hearts as we are reminded that our sin is taken away. There are different variations of this unchanging portion of the liturgy. Historically, this unchanging portion has five special songs. We'll get to that in just a second. I've heard the liturgy is described as a a journey into God's house. You are a guest in his house. And what do you do when you show up to somebody's house for a dinner party? Well, you take your shoes off so you don't drag the mud in, and you go wash your hands before you eat. That's the confession of sins. That has us taking off our dirty, muddy sins washing our hands of all the sinful things that we've done throughout the week so that we can get ready to feast at the meal God is providing for us. And we know that our hands are washed clean when we hear Pastor giving to us the words of what we call the absolution. So you don't confess your sins, and then Pastor says, well, thanks for saying that, everybody. Good luck this week. See you later. (laughs) How terrible would that be? No, instead we confess our sins and the pastor turns around at the command of God and says, your sins are all forgiven. And it took the power of the triune God to make that happen. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And now we're ready to feast on word and sacrament. And we say thank you when we hear the gospel. And then we go home, departing, saying, I can't wait to come back for dinner again next week. 
Now, in the ordinary, there's those five songs that we sing in the ordinary. They all come from the Bible, most of them, I should say. The first song is called the Kyrie, Lord Have Mercy. And that really is focusing on Psalm 123. Whenever we pray to the Lord, we remember that we depend completely on his mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. After that, you have the Gloria in Excelsis, the glory be to God, or the Gloria, we often call it. We use the words of angels, and we reflect God's praise. Then you have the Credo, or the Creed. We don't sing it. In, uh, in our church, there are settings where you can sing the creed. We speak the creed, and we're, we're confessing our faith. Not confessing our sins. That's a different confession. This is confessing our faith, saying what we believe. Then after that, you have the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. That's with Isaiah 6.3, again, singing the words of the angels that are around God's throne. And then after that, the Agnus Dei. O Christ, Lamb of God. That's that song. O Christ, Lamb of God. That's in John one we We're pointing to Jesus as the Savior, the Lamb of God. Back in the catechism here, the church year and the liturgy highlight the words and works of Christ. Because many Christians before us have worshipped in a similar way, these patterns in our worship remind us of the connection we have with the Christians who have lived before us. These patterns also remind us of the connection we have with other churches and Christians on other denominations. Of our denomination. Sorry, totally misread that. When we visit these churches, we often find that they use the same liturgy. At the same time, we rejoice in the freedom we have in worship, the freedom to use different patterns of worship with joy and responsibility. So we don't have to be locked into a given form. But we agree in Christian freedom that it's a good thing for us to wisely think through what we're doing. And if in the liturgy a lot of the things that we say and sing are ancient and are have been said and sung for thousands of years by thousands and millions of other Christians, boy, that seems really cool to connect us together. When we're confessing the Christian faith using one of the three ecumenical creeds, Apostles, Nicene, or Athanasian Creed, we only say the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday, by the way, because it takes forever to say. It's so long. It's so beautiful, but it's so long. So we say that one on Trinity Sunday. So if you ever visit a church, by the way, and you visit on a Trinity Sunday, and you don't, you're not usually a churchgoer, don't worry. We don't always say that creed every Sunday. <laughs> okay, so how about the other ways that we can worship then? If we're not going to use the liturgy, and we're not going to use historic hymnody, the hymns that were written, well then, what are you, you going to sing? Well, you've got a lot of options, right? But let me ask you this. What's more important? The style or the content? Wouldn't we say it's the content? I pulled up. Um, I, I pulled up one of the songs, uh, Matthew West. This is a uh, what we'd call like a modern Christian pop song uh, that is just been released uh, last year in twenty twenty two. Let me just read to you a couple of the lyrics, and, I, and I'm not making light of the lyrics. I just want to give an honest evaluation. So here's what he's singing. The story of me was a story of shame, wrong turns written on every page, so many parts that were so messed up, but I love the part where you showed up, rewriting my past, rewriting my hurt, line by line, word by word, and now my story is living proof. There's not a chapter you can't use. And then we go into the into the refrain. My story, your glory, my pain, your purpose, my mess, your message. In all things, I know you're working. One life, one mission, one reason why I'm living. All for you, not for me. My story, your glory. And then the next one. Now, 
The story of me is a story of grace, fingerprints of mercy on every page, no more ashamed of the path I took. You set me free to be an open book. If even my scars are part of your pain, plan, plan, part of your plan, take all of my heart, Lord, here I am. My only cause till you call me home is knowing you more and making you known. Not bad. I mean, really, there's not too much to complain about there. One critique, if I may be so bold as to offer it, who's that song about? (laughs) Isn't it about me, the singer? My story, my pain, my mess. Now, I, I understand he's, he's singing about that in the context of God entering into his life and, and entering into uh, uh, his story with forgiveness and strength, and that's good. That's good. Now I want to read to you um, a different hymn. This would be a, what we call a more traditional hymn. This one's written by Paul Gerhardt in 1653. Now listen to these lyrics. O Jesus Christ, thy manger is my paradise, at which my soul reclineth. For there, O Lord, doth lie the word, made flesh for us. Herein thy grace forth shineth. I'm using the old King James because it's just cool. He whom the sea and wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own Son, with us art one, dost join us and our children in our weakness. Thy light and grace our guilt efface, thy heavenly riches all our lost retrieving. Emmanuel, thy birth doth quell the power of hell and Satan's bold deceiving. Does it quite flow off the tongue? as well as Matthew West's does. But sometimes that's the point, right? Sometimes it's okay to sing a song that makes you slow down and have to think about the words. What is it I'm singing? And when you dig into the words of Gerhardt's hymn, and others like him, you find, wow, this is deep. We're singing about the truths of the Bible. We are singing what the Bible has taught us. And that is why we call hymns didactic. We like didactic hymns. That, again, I like sounding fancy. That means teaching him, but I don't say teaching hymns. I say didactic because it's fun. Why use a 10-cent word when a $10 word is available to you? A didactic hymn. All right, it's a, it's a teaching We like our hymns to be teaching hymns. So just in three verses of Gerhardt, you have the acts of God displayed for you. Now I know, I know, Matthew S. did some of that too. But if I look at his lyrics, I don't see the word Christ. I don't see... Christ's birth, death, resurrection reflected there. So I think it leaves a little something to be desired. That's just that's my personal opinion. Now, what if you took a Gerhardt hymn and, and set it to modern instrumentation? Great. Go for it. Awesome. Really. Let me read one more verse of Gerhardt's hymn. Thou Christian heart, whoe'er thou art, whoever you are, be of good cheer. And let no sorrow move thee, for God's own child, in mercy mild, joins thee to him. How greatly God must love thee. That, that's a deep hymn. That doesn't just recognize my mess. That sings the solution right into my mess. God's own child, in mercy mild, joins thee to him. Wow, me and God joined together. Okay, how about this? Uh, from I, I love Garrison Keeler. I think he's a hoot. You should listen to him too. Every now and then he's got some really good stuff. I remember hearing this segment 
long ago. It took me forever to dig it back up, but you're worth it. You're worth it. And I found it. Uh, Garrison Keeler's got a lot to say about Lutherans, <laughs> for better or worse. But here's a quote from, from Garrison Keeler, one of his shows. He says, Lutherans are bred from childhood to sing in four-part harmony. It's a talent that comes from sitting on the lap of someone singing alto or tenor or bass and hearing the harmonic inter- intervals by putting your little head against that person's rib cage. I remember that, by the way, as a kid. Maybe you do too. Do you ever lay on dad's big belly and you hear him breathing? Or you lay on dad when you're singing in church and you hear, you can feel the music? Again, that's something unique about uh, the Lutheran worship style. Why do we use the organ? Well, for practical reason, really, it leads congreg- it's built for leading congregational singing in four-part harmony. Garrison Keeler says it's natural for Lutherans to sing harmony. We're too modest to be soloists and too worldly to sing in unison. <laughs> and when you're singing in the key of C and you slide into A seventh and D seventh chords, all 200 of you, It's an emotionally fulfilling moment. He says, I once sang the bass line of Children of the Heavenly Father in a room with about 3,000 Lutherans in it. And when we finished, we all had tears in our eyes, partly from the promise that God will not forsake us, partly from the proximity of all those lovely voices. By our joining in harmony, we somehow promise that we will not forsake each other. I do believe this. People who love to sing in harmony are the sort of people you could call up when you're in deep distress. If you're dying, they will comfort you. If you are lonely, they'll talk to you. And if you're hungry, they'll give you a tuna salad. (laughs) Don't you just love his mix of humor in there? (laughs) And yet, doesn't he recognize something just so true and so special? The highest moments of my worship life, personally speaking, is when Lutherans singing in a gigantic group in four-part harmony and the organ drops out. And you can hear Lutherans blasting, God's word is our great heritage and shall be ours forever. Some of the highest points of my worship are when all a bunch of pastors get together in a gymnasium. We call it the symposium. We do that yearly up at seminary. And you get pastors who spend so much of their life singing, and they sing in four-part harmony, and it just echoes throughout the whole gymnasium. And at the last amen, we leave the pipes ringing and you just think, boy, what's it going to sound like in heaven? Not too bad for a fallen world to have that kind of a joy. Now, can we say that singing something other than a Lutheran hymn is a bad thing? No, I'm I'm not saying that. I even think there's a place for that. Are we saying that not following the liturgy is just a terrible idea? Nope, not not saying that either. I, I, again, I think there's a place for that. See, this is the beautiful part about Lutheran, uh, Lutheran worship. There's a historic aspect and a flexible aspect. But what must rule the conversation? Not personal preference. We got to be so careful not to build our worship life around personal preference. By the way, it's okay to have some personal preference. But what must be front and center? What is wise? What is wise? We gather together for word and sacrament. What should we do in our gathering? Well, what gives God the most glory? What brings our attention most efficiently out of this world and into the Word? 
What means and mediums do I have to draw my very soul up to heaven? To draw my eyes from a fallen, twisted world and to look with longing to the glory that awaits me. To Jerusalem, the golden, with milk and honey blessed. The sight of it refreshes the weary and oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not, what joy awaits me there. What radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. Jesus and mercy bring us to that dear land of rest. I'm not going to finish the hymn, mostly because I said that from memory, and I'm not even sure if I hit all the right words. But that's a Lutheran hymn. And how beautifully, when it's sung together, does it draw our attention home to heaven? Be wise in how we construct our worship because it becomes so much of who we are, our identity. And so we want to use the mediums that bring us together and draw our eyes to God. So when you walk into an especially beautiful sanctuary, I think we have an especially beautiful one at St. Mark's here in Watertown. If you haven't been, give me an email or a call. I'll take you on a tour. And you can even join us for worship. But what's the first thing people do when they walk into our sanctuary? They look up, surrounded by art that communicates the word of God, surrounded by symbols that draw our attention to the love of Christ. As we sing together the hymns that point us toward heaven, as we hear expounded the word of Christ that serves us now on our journey. That's why we do what we do my friends. And now it's time for us to do something else. It's time for you to stop listening to me because you have listened to me for 52 minutes and counting. How many of you just looked at your podcast timer, by the way? (laughs) Thank you, my friends, for joining me for another episode. If there is more to talk about in worship, you need to tell me what it is. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. I love ya. I'll see ya on the next one.